Okay. Um, tonight, what I my intention is to speak to two parables, and I'll speak. I want to speak to two parables a week if we can in the class. And those two parables are what is what are titled uh, "Willing Acceptance" and "Herbs." So, chapter four and five of the Lotus Sutra. And we'll see how far we get. They're both, uh, they're quite different as parables and make quite different points. So um, before we go ahead, uh, are there any, so let, last week we spoke about uh, the parable of the burning house, which is um, related by, the Buddha is relating this to Shariputra, who is one of the Shravakas and Arhats. Uh, and uh, I just want to know before we go forward, are there any uh, any questions or any thoughts or anything come up to you uh, about that uh, parable? Genpo, I see your hand raised. Yeah, I was just sitting in the Zendo today and uh, thinking about that parable, that which we kind of, I felt like we had kind of, we left it somewhat undigested. And for some reason, the the words to amazing grace were just flitting through my mind as I was thinking about that parable, this idea of, of you know, that saved a wretch like me, this idea that, that um, somehow the parable is less about our something we're supposed to be practicing and more about just kind of how we see ourselves and how we see the functioning of, of Dharma. And I kind of feel like this idea, this like amazing grace idea is kind of a through line through all the parables of the Lotus Sutra, um, rather than other sutras, which are a bit more instructive. I think that that's right. And as, as I, I will, I think I spoke about last week and I'll speak about more. Um, the idea of grace or salvation is that is available to everyone is a very important point of the sutra. But it's, it's different from other schools, uh, from the Pure Land schools, uh, which in which grace is the fundamental thing. Uh, you know, it's, it comes back to one of the, you know, one of the interesting uh, theological uh, issues in Christianity, the, the, the dynamic between faith and works. Uh, you know, are you saved by faith? In other words, is one <clears throat> just given this, this gift of salvation? Or is it somehow related to our actions. And I think that in the Lotus Sutra, and we will come to this uh, in, uh, in, some of the, in some of the parables, that um, there's an activity that has to happen to catalyze the grace or the Buddha nature that's available to everyone. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for that. It's wonderful to relate it to a song. Other thoughts or questions? Uh, 
I'm not seeing, um, just see a second. I don't know if, uh, if Ron is here. Uh, I don't think so. But I wanted to, Ron gave a, a Monday morning talk the other day and uh, he's reflecting on uh, a quotation from Suzuki Roshi from uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, the chapter on right effort. And Suzuki Roshi said, people ask what it means to practice Zazen with no gaining idea. What kind of effort is necessary for that kind of practice? The answer is effort to get rid of something extra from our practice. And Ron was, was contrasting that perspective with uh, the image of the carts and the toys in the burning house uh, chapter. And he was, I think he was saying essentially, uh, he, he found a resonance particularly with uh, what Suzuki Roshi said. And I was thinking about this, and you may have further thoughts about this yourselves. Um, I think that these, those perspectives are speaking about uh, two very different moments of practice for us. Um, so Suzuki Roshi is speaking to, uh, to people who have already consciously taken up, uh, wait, there's a message from Lori. Uh, I am, are you on the BZC network of what? Hang on a second or a home network. I am on the BZC network. I'm on Plum Mountain. Does that answer your question? Is there something yeah, about you're, that? You're, you're cutting out a little from time to time. Oh. I thought. No, I'm, I'm on Plum Mountain. I don't know why. Great. No worries. OK, should I get closer to the microphone? Is that does that help? Um, well, anyway, freezing up. It's more of a freezing oh. up. Hmm. Anyway, what I was saying was that Suzuki Roshi is talking to established practitioners and pointing them to a very pure and challenging practice. Uh, and, you know, he's presuming that the people he's speaking to are already on the path. Uh, you could say, as Suzuki Roshi said elsewhere, uh, he was always aiming at emptiness. Uh, and understanding the intertwining of the absolute with the relative. Uh, and in a sense, the Lotus Sutra ultimately has the same aim. Uh, but here in the context of what the Buddha is developing as skillful means, he's coming from the relative. He's pointing towards the absolute, but he's coming from the relative and uh, he's speaking to other beings. He's speaking to, uh, to beings who are unaware of practice uh, and who are in, in, or those who are entranced by the toys, if you will, either the toys of the regular mundane world or the toys 
of enlightenment rather than uh, the absolute of Buddhahood. So I think, you know, simply saying uh, Suzuki Roshi is emphasizing pure practice and the Lotus Sutra is emphasizing skillful means that lead us to pure practice. So that, that's just a somehow a, a clarification that that I was thinking of in response to what Ron was saying. Um, any thoughts or comments about that? Rondi? You're muted. Yes. yes, I've been thinking a lot about skillful means and these the first two parables. And it's it seems to me that, um, you know, the um, protagonists of the first two parables try to execute skillful means. That is their intent. But, um, but we might, or I might think that they fall off. And that, that happens with us sometimes in our practice. Like it might be our intent to, um, uh, to utilize skillful means, but it doesn't work out that way. So, um, so I, I, I think I, I think that is one of the through lines. Like, what what is skillful means? And sometimes um, I might fall off, and then how do I how do I recoup myself? So. Well, I think we actually get to that in the third parable. The parable of uh, of the medicinal herbs and the Dharma rain, you know, just to say, to, not to skip ahead too much, but uh, the fact that the Dharma, the Dharma rain is always falling, so we all we always have a chance to go out in the rain and get wet. Uh, so if we're all dried up and uh, you know we go outside and get into the rain, but we'll we'll come back to that. That's a really good question. Other points or questions? Okay. Well, so I want to talk about uh, the parable in the fourth chapter. Uh, sometimes this parable is called the parable of the prodigal son, which is actually a kind of well, it's a misnomer, but it's interesting because, you know, the early French translator, uh, Bernouf, I believe, uh, all of the early translators into English were essentially Christian. And so they had, a, they had this biblical frame of reference and they saw a kind of parallel, uh, even though it doesn't really fit between uh, the parable of the prodigal son in the New Testament, which you find in in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, uh, and uh, this this parable, uh, because both of them involve uh, sons who are lost and get found, uh, and who are who are welcomed back after long wandering, but. But the points of the parable are very different. It's interesting, though, there's some speculation that I've come across that the, 
the cultural mix of the Silk Road, uh, you know, where you had you had an incredible blending of of cultures of early Christianity, of Mahayana Buddhism, of Islam. All of these cultures were uh, were meeting and spending time in the spaces and in the caravans and in the marketplaces of uh, these Central Asian cities. And so it's not impossible that there's some uh, interpenetration of these kind of archetypal stories. Uh, you know, just to, just without going into it, just to remind you that the story of the prodigal son in, in Luke is, uh, the the younger son there's two some man had two sons and the younger son asks for his inheritance in in advance of his father's death the father gives it gives it to him he goes off and uh lives a, a life of lives a, a life of prodigality of wastefulness and extravagance and um he uh runs through all of his money over a period of years and he ends up in a land where there's famine. And he also ends up having spent all his money, he ends up being a swine herd, which of course to, uh, this is a parable that Jesus tells to a Jewish audience, that would not actually have been, uh, not have gone down so well. That's how low he sank. And he comes to, to realize that, you know, even the swine have more food than, than he does, and he decides he's going to go home. So he goes back home, and uh, his father is overjoyed to see him and welcomes him back and uh, sends the servants to give him robes and to go out and kill the fatted calf and to have a, you know, a wonderful party and celebration, welcoming, welcoming back. Meanwhile, the older son, who has of course, been the good son, uh, you know, is jealous. And he said, you know, uh, I've been here all along. And I've done everything that you asked me to do. And, uh, you know, you never gave me even a goat. Um, you know, and the parable concludes with the father explaining to the elder son, uh, that everything the father owns also belongs to the older son. But because the younger son had returned, as if from the dead, a celebration was necessary. And he wanted both brothers to, to celebrate and be, be glad and alive that what was lost was found. Uh, this goes back to interestingly enough, to what, to Gempo talking about uh, Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Uh, so it's a very different point than, than this parable, but it's, uh, it's a beautiful story. It's a story of redemption. And in fact, the Buddhist story is also a story of redemption. So 
to tell you the story very briefly. So at the end of chapter three, which has been the Buddha speaking, telling the parable to Shariputra, and Shariputra is overjoyed to realize that um, what, what he had previously thought was kind of the, uh, the end state of his practice, being an, being an arhat, being freed from rebirth, uh, was really just a way station uh, towards Buddhahood. So in this sutra, what you have is comments from, uh, from four other great arhats, some of the, the early and very senior members of the Sangha, which is Subhuti, uh, Katiyana, Yayana, uh, Mogolyayana, and Makashapa. And they relate this parable to show that they've understand the replacement of the three vehicles with the one vehicle that the Buddha recounted in the first, uh, in, in the earlier parable. So I just want to read you something by, by way of their introduction uh, to this parable. At the, at the time, these four uh, Shravakas, having heard the unprecedented teacher from the Buddha and his prediction of Sariputra's highest complete enlightenment, were filled with wonder and ecstatic joy. They immediately rose from their seats straightened their garments, leaving their right shoulders bared and touched their right knees to the ground, which is kind of a ritual uh, monastic posture when hearing, when hearing the Dharma, posture of respect. Uh, with rapt attention and with palms pressed together, they bowed in veneration and gazing at the Buddha's face said to the Buddha, we are the seniors of the Sangha, old and feeble. We considered ourselves to have attained nirvana and to be incapable of further seeking highest complete enlightenment. So we did not do so. Um, so in other words, they were happy with what they got uh, and how far they went. It has been a long time since the Buddha taught the Dharma in the past. Now we sit with weary bodies and only contemplate emptiness, signlessness, and wishlessness. So if you recall, in uh, January, uh, we had a study of those three practices, uh, those three perceptions of signlessness, uh, emptiness, signlessness, and wishlessness, the, what we talked about as the three doors of liberation. So that's articulated here, that is the practice of these arhats. Neither the bodhisattva teaching nor the carefree sporting with transcendent powers, nor the pure Buddha worlds, nor helping sentient beings attain enlightenment produced any eager desire in us. In other words, they just weren't going to try any further. 
having come to this place of arhatship, uh, they were going to leave it at that. Now, in the presence of the Buddha, having heard him bestow upon the Shravakas this prediction of complete enlightenment, our hearts rejoice enthusiastically, and we obtain what we never have had. We never thought that now we would suddenly be able to hear this rare Dharma. We never thought that we could be Buddhas. So this is, um, this really touched me this week. Um, and maybe you have similar feelings. Uh, you know, the feeling, I couldn't do that. You know, I, uh, I couldn't aspire to complete Buddhahood. And really the message of this parable is, please do, because it is available to each of us, if we listen and practice the Dharma, particularly if we practice the Bodhisattva path, that none of this is beyond us. And this is a very powerful message because um, I think there's a level on which often many of us lack the confidence to really go the distance towards Buddhahood. And we're being encouraged by the sutra to do that. And this, this really reached me originally with an awareness of where I perceive my, my limited aspiration. So Ross has his hand up, yeah. Thank you, Hosan. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about what does it look like to not fully uh, step into or actualize Buddhahood? And secondly, uh, being a bodhisattva is allowing others to so-called go first. And I'm wondering the, about the tension between allowing others to maybe express Buddhahood or manifest in a certain way and if that's actually a kind of a cop-out of not stepping forward oneself. Yeah, I mean, I, this is, I mean, I think this is a really interesting and ongoing question that, that we won't resolve. But um, first of all, you know, to go to this, what you're raising at Bodhisattva practice, uh, and this comes up later, in the sutra, you know, in chapter 20, when you hear about, when, when you hear the story of the Bodhisattva never disparaging, uh, who tells everybody that he sees they're going to be a Buddha. Uh, so this is a radical shift, uh, you know, to see 
everyone as a prospective Buddha. And in fact, it's not just a radical shift for, it's a radical shift for, for us, I think, as individuals, uh, where we might want to say, well, yes, except for so-and-so. Uh, but it's also uh, a um, radical doctrinal shift where uh, in other, even Mahayana texts, there was really the proposition that uh, not everybody was going to get to be a Buddha, and not everyone even had Buddha nature. That there were some people whose transgressions uh, precluded that. But as far as I think that if one if one can see Buddhahood in those around us, then by implication, we would see it in ourselves. And I think the inverse is true. If we can see Buddhahood in ourselves, then by implication, uh, we can see it in others. But I, I think that's, that's just the start, how you do this. And I think this is, you know, uh, we really have, we have such a powerful example of it in Suzuki Roshi, who just seemed remarkably to see Buddhahood in everyone and to treat <clears throat> to treat beings as Buddhas. That's, I mean, sometimes we we need an actual physical example, someone to model ourselves after, and you know, our teachers. Uh, Offer that to us. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds me of um, somebody talking about being outside of Sojin's office and the student was yelling at him and being very uh, upset. And uh, a few days later, the person asked Sojin, what was that like for you to be so insulted and sort of attacked by this person that was just venting? And he said, I was just looking at the other side the other person's side of the Buddha that is just um, still and the manifestation I inferred was just her upset and not saying this person is just a bad person in this right. moment she's upset and there's still the Buddha right there. Um, right. And that that person didn't boil down to they didn't the distillation of that person was not that upsetness. Exactly. Yeah. In that yeah. moment, it's the upsetness, but it's not ultimately it. The other thing you, you mentioned just in passing, which I think is really important, is confidence that people, you know, yeah. lacking confidence, we don't come forward. And Sojin used to say about uh, awakening and, and practice is that a confidence fills our body. And then we, in fact, can step forward or we are confident enough to step back and let others step forward. Yeah. If we don't have confidence, then we kind of waffle and we'll let, uh oh, I'll let somebody else go forward because I'm afraid or I'm going to step forward because I need to be seen. So it works in both ways, like stepping forward, stepping back. Right. So, yeah, he was often, I, I mean, I often heard him speaking about confidence. And um, this is, I mean, I, I love this passage. Uh, 
this introductory passage in this in this parable because uh, these arhats are actually admitting their lack of confidence, and now their and their transformation. So that brings us to the parable. Yeah, thank you. So, so let me talk about the parable a bit. So briefly, um, sort of. You have a wealthy man's son who runs away from his father as a youth. And for 50 years, he wanders from one place to another in total poverty. And he hires himself out wherever he goes as a menial laborer. And he's just wandering. And one day in his wandering, he chances upon his father's mansion which in all this wandering during 50 years he maybe his father moved but anyway it he wasn't recognizing his old home place if it was that and but the father recognizes him right away and he's overjoyed and he wants to give him all of his wealth and his possessions so the father, you know, as it goes in, in the explication in, later in this parable, the father is the Buddha. But the son does not recognize his father. And something about the grandeur and the wealth of uh, this person who he sees uh, frightens him and overwhelms him. And he runs away. And so the father sends a messenger to bring him back. And the messenger thinks, the son thinks the messenger has come to arrest him and he faints. Uh, so when he hears this, the father tells the messenger to release him and send a couple of other servants wearing really dirty clothes uh, and offer the son work, uh, clearing away manure in the, in the stables. And uh, that's the kind of work that the son was used to. And so he happily uh, agrees to do that. So after a while, you know, this, the son's uh, labors there, by the way, lasted another 20 years. So we have we have an interesting kind of chronological <laughs> challenge there. Uh, you have 70 years of uh, of life unfolding in the course of this story. Uh, but um, after a while, the father disguises himself in dirty clothes so that he can approach the sun. And he comes as kind of the, uh, the foreman of the stable cleaners. And he tells the sun that uh, he always has a job there. He can work there and that this foreman will treat him like his own son.
And so here the son works for 20 years, cleaning away the dung, the, gong, the dung, and he gradually, this is in the language, uh, he gradually gains self-confidence. Um, and the rich man also gradually, the father gradually promotes him and charges him with administration of the of the stables and then administration of the of the property. And he comes to the son comes to understand the whole workings of the estate. And eventually, as he senses his death approaching, uh, the rich man invites all of his relatives and the officials of the kingdom, and he declares to him, to them, that this servant is actually his real son. And he transfers to the son his whole estate. So the rich man in this parable represents the Buddha, whose desire is to have everyone experience the same awakening as his own. Uh, just as the rich man wishes to bequeath uh, his wealth to his son, that all all beings are the, the Buddha's children. And the son represents sort of ordinary people who are wandering about aimlessly and uh, transmigrating through lifetime after lifetime without encountering the one Buddha vehicle. And so uh, to lead them to enlightenment, the Buddha employs expedient means and preaches what is appropriate to his son's capacity. So he gives him work that's appropriate to him, that's going to help him feel at ease, that's going to help him build his confidence, as we were talking about a moment ago, and uh, develop confidence in his ability to understand and do the work uh, and in metaphorical terms, to understand and be ho at home in the Dharma. And so the son, the father is teaching the son gradually, and this is how the Buddha leads sentient beings gradually to higher teachings and ultimately reveals the one Buddha vehicle of the Lotus Sutra. One of the things that, that struck me in this, uh, this parable is the, the moment where the father uh, dresses in dirty clothes and meets the son. And this is in accord with, this is bodhisattva practice, often we say, uh, bodhisattvas, great bodhisattvas have the capacity uh, to meet each being in the form that is going to most appropriately lead to awakening. Uh, 
in our chaplaincy training, um, the work that we that I've been doing at Upaya Zen Center for about 10 years, the expression that we use is coming alongside. Um, it's just, it's not confrontation. It's not taking by the hand. It's just walking alongside, taking the form that allows you to be side by side with sentient beings and subtly guide them in the right direction. Uh, and you have to find the way to do this. But I mean, I think that in many ways, for some of you, uh, there's some of you who have chaplaincy experience or have other teaching experience. Uh, this is this is something that we've learned to do to to come alongside. Uh, and I actually love that expression. Uh, and there's a I haven't been able to find them. I heard, remember the quotation, but I, I can't, I can't, I've never been able to find it again. But I remember uh, an expression of Kobanchino Roshi's, where he says, uh, being a bodhisattva means just walking alongside someone at the same pace. I see Ryushin's shaking her head. Do you remember something like that? Can't hear you. I do, I do remember it, but I don't remember the source. But we have yeah. someone on our Sangha who knows his writings well. So we'll have, yeah, we'll have to look for this. Yeah. So, in other ways of looking at uh, the content of this, uh, the cleaner, the job cleaning out the stables. Uh, can also be seen as representing the teaching of the early Buddhist tradition. Uh, you know, it's like cleaning away what what the work is. Uh, well, it's like the six. It's like the poetry contest in the Platform Sutra, where uh, Shen Shu says. Uh, about the mirror, you know, the dust falls and and our practice is to clear away the dust. So our practice that's that's very nice. But really, our practice is to clear away the shit that's, that's in our lives, which is probably more more tedious and not as as not as much not as easy as dusting. Sue? Thank you. Um couple of thoughts arose. Um, one is when we walk alongside someone, I don't what I don't see here is a contribution mutual contribution, reciprocity, where if you say you're walking alongside someone, you can receive gifts from them too. If it's all one way, you get very uh, it's daunting. Does that make sense? Yes. And that, um, one of the things that I love about uh, Jean Reeves' commentary, uh, it's actually a commentary on the next parable, 
but throughout this, uh, throughout Gene Reeves' very, really generous, open-hearted commentary, uh, he is constantly emphasizing that we have a role that it's not it it is there is a reciprocity that um that it's not like when we get to the next parable it's not just that the buddha's reign falls on everybody uh but that everybody has the capacity to preach the dharma and to uh to share it uh so I think the implica- I think the implication is there, and I think it's really it's helpful for you to draw that out. Uh, you know, when we come alongside, uh, it's what that is is what Dogen talks about uh, in Yuibutsu uh, Yobutsu, only a Buddha and a Buddha. So it's two Buddhas meeting. One may recognize that he or she is a Buddha, and the other may not. But ultimately, uh, that awakening allows them both to work together, to cooperate. Thank you. I want to add something, which sure. is um, the. <clears throat> the joy, the leaping for joy, the joyous reception or understanding moment of the bodhisattvas, the arhats and so forth. Um, that I think that that exhibits an equal platform in some ways. And it's really fun for me to imagine that. Yeah. Um, I can imagine, you know, a, a dance routine on that based on that, but um, it, it it was really great. And the the father going in and covering himself with dung and cleaning up the stables or the cattle um, stables. It's just um, I'm still trying to process that one, but I sort of get it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Ryushin. Thank you. I have a comment, which uh, your last, how you started this uh, really uh, made irresistible for me to, to add. And then I have a, a sincere question. And the comment is, uh, in training my last dog, it, we replaced the usual command of heal which is a way to tell the dog that you want them with you to follow you with um, with me. Mm. And it's very it's a similar feel and it really is relational in terms of how we I relate to the dog and uh, uh, it, it's a quite different feel and I think it changes how uh, how I re, how I interact with her. So that with me has been very powerful. That's really beautiful. I mean, it's that's a restatement of the power relationship between the dog and the so-called owner, right? You got it. That's right. Yeah. And that's really that's really sweet. I like that a lot. Yeah, thank you. It's um 
anyway, thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. So here's my, here's my, so this was a surprise reaction to reading this parable, which I've, I've read many times over the years, and I've always been very worn by the, the grace and the possibility in it. This time when I read it, I was struck by, I was struck by how so much power of uh, revelation of the person's true nature and gifts was vested in the father. And although he, he makes it horizontal, it's really a vertical kinds of, it reads is very vertical. And maybe it's the translation of Christians doing that, or maybe this is something else, but I really struggle when I read it this time too, that actually, you know, the Buddha nature, the point is it's within us, it is us, and our work is to uncover it by our effort and good fortunes, the grace of, of practice and people we come in contact with and our teachers. Could you say something about that? Yeah, I, I, I totally understand the, there's all kinds of uncomfortable elements uh, in the midst of a very beautiful message. And the uncomfortable parts are uh, patriarchal, male supremacist, mm -hmm. you know, there's no prodigal daughter. Um, there's no, you know, there's no mothers that are mentioned in these things. It's like, yeah, I think it behooves us to be uncomfortable about these things without throwing them out. This is the, this is the really the challenge of us. Like how do we have to, the only way that these sutras are usable, it's completely dependent upon how we use and understand and interpret them, not on the words that are on the page necessarily. And so, um, yeah, I understand that. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Kabir. Hi, Hosan, everybody. How the father approached the son and met him where the son was, I kind of see that. Um, how's our Zen, Zen practice is. And I'll give you an example of what my experience has been since I've been with Berkeley Zen Center in late 20, 2017, it doesn't matter, but where I walked in in a Zendo, no clue, and nobody told me what to do, how to do it. You're doing it wrong, you're doing it right. It was just, I was just there, I showed up. And until this day, I'm making so many mistakes that I can't even, however, not once I was judged or was scolded or in any way, I was met where exactly where I, you know, from the minute I walked in, I didn't know what Zazen was until I sold my rocket suit until right now. And, and I kind of see the psychology of that is because our minds are so fragile, it's our minds are skittish. You know, our egos are fragile. We're our, we're, we, and by you know, if the if the father showed up with his, you know, when his 
king outfit in the in the you know in the stable, you know how, how would have that the Buddha would have under that sound would have felt, but no, he he just met him where he was, and I feel that in our practice, you know, especially with with our community, I've always feel that I'm always met where I am in my ignorant, not knowing, um, and my very limited knowledge of the Dharma or Zen or anything. But I always feel that I'm 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 home. And it, you know, and, and and there's nothing special going on here. It's not like we're not really doing anything really special. We just sit, count our breath, get up, bow out, you know, and then just go on our day. Mm-hmm. But there's this, and I think that's where and what really attracted me to, to this practice was that we're doing exactly what the Buddha did sitting under the Bodhi tree. He was just sitting. And he got up and he did his work, got his meal, and then just keep repeating it. So I see that that hasn't been broken. That 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 tread or that vein or whatever you call it, that has not been broken from the minute that the Buddha sat in the Bodhi tree until we're having this class. Mm. So that's 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 how I see it with with, with the meeting the, the father and the son. Thank you. One thing that occurs to me is that um, Thank you. We are a patrol we are a patrol order uh, not a brocade order. You can go to uh, you know, you can go to some some temples and the you know, the, the teachers wear fancy robes uh, but our model uh, you know, the most precious robe I have is this worn out uh, Kangasha robe that's got a lot of patches, which, and so, Sojins were like that. And when you read about Ryud Ruching, Dogen's teacher, Dogen's teacher never wore a fancy robe. You know, so this are the, you know, this is the model for, for how our practice is. It's very down to earth. So, uh, yeah. 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 So, Pauline, and then I want to move on, if I can. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to say, I mean, when I was reading this, I certainly had some of the, you know, same reactions that Yoshin was describing. Um, what I, you know, find myself counterposing to that is actually my favorite part of the parable, which is the part where uh, the uh, father gives the son the job of, you know, keeping an eye on the storehouse saying, okay, I want you to keep, you know, uh, watching all these treasures. Why do I want you to do this? Because you and I are one in the same, um, you know, the, where the, the son is the wealthy man, the son is Buddha. He's just not, he, he doesn't know it and isn't in a position to know it yet. Um, and of course, the, you know, the reason that, um, he is also the wealthy man is because he's the father's heir and there are these patriarchal, you know, inheritance laws and all that. But that's like, uh, you know, that's the scaffolding of the parable. Um, and at least in, in this moment, when when he just says, you and I are one of the same for me, the uh, the scaffolding kind of falls away and, mm-hmm. um, and there's a bit of essence there. Good, thank you. Well, let's just take a breath here for a moment.
And I'd like to move to the the next chapter uh, and to the parable of peculiarly named herbs. Uh, and uh, it begins with the Buddha addressing Mahakashapa and the other great disciples saying, splendid, splendid, O Kashapa, you have skillfully explained the real merit of the Tathagata. In other words, you get this. And then the Buddha relates this parable of the, uh, the three kinds of herbs and the different trees uh, that illustrate that although the Buddha's teaching is the same, those who encounter it understand it differently and develop in different ways. Um, so he says, it's just like the grasses, trees, shrubs, and herbs that do not know their own natures, whether they are superior, mediocre, or inferior. Yet the Tathagata knows the teachings of one aspect and character, the character of liberation, dispassion, cessation, complete nirvana, and eternal tranquility, which ultimately leads to emptiness. The Buddha knows this and perceives the aspirations of sentient beings. For this reason, in order to protect them, he does not immediately teach omniscience. O Kashapya, it is a rare thing that all of you know that Tathagata teaches according to your capacities and that you believe and accept it. Why is this? Because the Dharma taught by all the Buddhas according to what is appropriate to sentient beings is difficult to understand and difficult to know. So the metaphor is that there's a great cloud in the sky giving out rain and moisture equally to uh, various types of trees and plants. And the various types of plants and uh, are three kinds of medicinal herbs and two kinds of trees. And all of them, by virtue of their distinctive nature, absorb moisture differently and grow at varying rates. So, uh, There's a contradiction here. Uh, and the more I look at it, uh, and, and the commentaries say this, uh, that in a sense, this parable is appears to be in contradiction to the previous two. Um, because it seems to imply that different beings have different capacities for receiving the Dharma. And in a sense, that identity determines capacity or the vehicle that you're capable of following. Uh, so, you know, the inferior herb supposedly denotes the teachings for heavenly beings and human beings. The mediocre herbs denote teachings for the Shravaka, uh, and Pracheka Buddhas, the 
the Four Noble Truths and the, and the uh, laws of dependent origination. And the so-called superior herb denotes the teachings for the bodhisattvas. Uh, so this is kind of a conundrum. Uh, I want to read you something that uh, uh, Donald, Gomez, Donald uh, Lopez and Jackie Stone write. The metaphor of a single truth leading to different results seems at odds with the previous parables, which emphasize the Buddha's ability to perceive the capabilities of his disciples and using skillful means to adapt his teachings accordingly. To borrow the metaphor of this chapter, the notion of skillful means there would seem to imply a different rain falling on different plants. The central image of this chapter is the variety of sentient beings and how they differ in character, disposition, and capacity, something perceived only by Buddha. In fact, the chapter seems to acknowledge the tension between the notion of a single vehicle and the plurality of skillful means of, expla of, of explaining that the Buddha attracts sentient beings with a single resounding statement, I set free who have all, all who have been, uh, all who have not been freed. Uh, I enlighten all those who have not been enlightened. Um, a little later he says, as before, the Buddha reiterates his teaching in verse, and here again, no attempt is made to resolve any contradictions between a single teaching and a multiplicity of skillful means. Um, so, I'm wondering what you make of this. Hey, go. I'm just thinking of a single moon reflected in many ponds and many dew drops. Each drop or pond may seem to be differently receiving because of its shape, size, or, you know, agitated character if there's a wind blowing and yet it's still the same moon mm -hmm. and uh for each uh separate being to understand uh the idea of skillful means is really only the being itself receiving not the buddha's changing the message so that's what i take from it. it's just like the one moon yeah thank you hmm. Um, Dave? I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to articulate this. I maybe sh should think a little bit more, but, but I think one of the things is um, there's sort of two central teachings in the Lotus Sutra, and it's that there's skillful means and that there's a one vehicle. Mm -hmm. 
And so the question is whether we, which one of those we think is more true. So in other words, is the one vehicle teaching another skillful means, right? Or are right. skillful means all to the one vehicle? So there's two different ways of reading the sutra. But because if you think the one vehicle is actually just yet another skillful means, then um, I think that's what resolves those tensions because they're all skillful means towards something that can't be named. The sutra never names. Um, as I said, I maybe need to <laughs> think about that a little more to try to put that into words, but um, just that that's the question. It's, um, uh, is the one vehicle teaching itself only a skillful means? Yeah, I, that's an interesting point, and maybe we should come back to this a little later because um, I think that quite a number of points in the in the text. It's really arguing that the one vehicle is uh, is the supreme vehicle, uh, and you know, of course. Also, just to to name it, uh, because we've been kind of flirting around the uh, the edges of it tonight. The Lotus Sutra, as we're reading it, and as we're reading these parables, is uh, seems to be implying a gradual path, which is distinct from kind of the uh, the sudden awakening approach of of Zen. So it's a little different. You could look at it as a little different, whether it is or isn't depends on, you know, then there's all kinds of interpretation. But um, I think we're going to come back to this question. I think this is the, you know, this is the conundrum of, of this particular parable because it seems to stand the other two parables, the previous two, on their heads. Dan? Um, I started thinking about um, Ryushin's observation about the hierarchical nature of the, of the second parable, and that it occurred, seemed to me that the reason it was that way is not so much about the father's position, but the son's hindrances and his inability to fully accept in that moment his true position so that there took a series of steps and skillful means to sort of bring him to that awareness and that I think that's sort of the I don't see it as a contradiction the the parable of the rain is that um, the very the variability in teaching that occurs is due to the various states and abilities of different beings to accept and understand those teachings, but the ultimate teaching, just like the ultimate essence of the rain, is the same, although it manifests itself differently because of the different um, uh, beings and capabilities involved. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that um, that Gene Reeves writes um, says, which is interesting to think about. With the simile of the cloud and the rain, the focus of the sutra has shifted somewhat from a focus on skillful means 
in chapter uh, two through four to an emphasis on the universality of the Dharma and the equality of living beings. So that's what that's what he reads in it. So the universality universality of the Dharma is that's pretty clear if we look at this image of the cloud and the rain. Uh, the equality of living beings, you know, I think that actually uh, that's that's kind of what Ryushin was talking about uh, in relation to uh, the training process of of her dog. To say, come with, is an acknowledgement of equality. It's not, it's not a statement, every, everyone has their own, we each have our own capabilities, our own intelligences, our own aptitudes, uh, but in a fundamental way, we are essentially equal. We're equal in our value as sentient beings. And this is what's like the, the leaf, the blade of grass is equal in its beingness to the tree. Uh, but it can only accept what, what would feed a tree would deluge a blade of grass. So, um, you know, it's it's an interesting ongoing question, and it's to me it's it's about uh, also the the interpenetration of the relative and the absolute. Uh, that the absolute is the equality of all beings. The relative is. Uh, and we always we always have to acknowledge that that never disappears, but on a relative basis, um, we come along at our own rates. And you know what I think? If I look, if I really push this metaphor a bit, um, the full growth of a blade of grass is Buddhahood. The full growth of a tree is Buddhahood. That each of them, in their maturity, comes to Buddhahood. Each so each of us, in our maturity, comes to Buddhahood, which is very encouraging. And what Anand talked to re, talk about Reeves at the end of it, uh, at the end of this chapter. Um, just find it. That he's saying it's not just that the Buddha as this great cloud is raining on all of us. This comes up, this comes 
back to the question that was asked before, you know, it's also, we are responsible for reading the Dharma on those around us. And they offer their, they offer their nurturance and their reign back to us. There's a balance, there's a harmony. And this is really important. Um, let me read you this section from Reeves because I, I think this is this is this is really an interpretation, and it's it's very powerful to me. Today, many believe that the minimal harmony necessary for human survival on Earth is being destroyed by the Earth's dominant group of human beings, of living beings, human beings. Whole habitats, rainforests, wetlands, uncultivated plains, natural rivers and streams have been destroyed and are still being destroyed at an increasing rate. Increased economic activity virtually everywhere also means increasing pollution of the air and water and the very soil upon which we depend for much of our food. In addition to such environmental destruction, humankind has developed weapons of enormous destructive power that could hardly have been imagined a century ago. In this sense, human beings have made themselves more important, that is, more powerful than other living beings in this ecosystem. They threaten to destroy even the minimal harmony that makes life on Earth possible. This is a situation well beyond what the Indian compilers of the Lotus Sutra could have imagined. It would be foolish to claim that the Sutra provides a recipe for solving the kind of problems that threaten the planet today. But in principle, the Sutra is hardly silent about such matters. It calls upon us to recognize that in important respects, all living beings are equal. All are nourished by the same processes symbolized in the simile as the reign of Dharma. That's a really beautiful interpretive passage. And powerful, humbling. You know, just as a species, we can be so self-centered. And of course, the same is true of us as individuals. And the practice that we've been given, and I think the practice here that's being communicated by the entirety of the Lotus Sutra is to be all centered, to be awake to all that is growing around us, which includes ourselves, and to be in a continual process of growth and transformation. 
the rain is always available to nurture us. And to take this chapter in the larger context of the rest of the sutra, the rain promotes our growth to Buddhahood. And that's, um, that's a great opportunity. So I want to just, let's just, um, I think we can express gratitude that we are nurtured by this rain. And we do that by, you know, returning the gift of practice to, to those around us, whether it's in very particular forms of the practice or just in simple kindness and respect. So any, any thoughts or any comments as we're moving towards the end of this session? Echo. Um, this doesn't follow, but it came to my mind as uh, you were talking that one of the reasons things seem so disordered in my mind is that humans are not providing as much as they are taking. And the thing that came to my mind was that by its nature, a mountain provides life and nurturance to every kind of creature and, and, and being. And in that sense, we should respect mountains a great deal and, and take our place in the order of nature. But instead, we are mountaintop mining and we are uh, destroying the environment. Uh, and that is out of order. Uh, and so that's just my comment yeah. for now. I, I'm thinking about that. Well, I, th I think that's important. That's a really good point. And, you know, I, it brings to mind, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, we actually had a Buddha's birthday ceremony at the Nevada nuclear test site. I don't know if any of you were there. Uh, Stan was there. Um, and you go to this Nevada nuclear test site and what they did, something like 100 above ground nuclear tests. So there's craters all over the place. There's all these wires and, you know, kind of decaying machinery lying all around. Uh, and, it, you know, it's a kind of wasteland but it's also, it's also a sacred space. And it was really challenging to see that as a sacred space, you know, and to wonder, for example, how are we sacralizing 
what's what's being done to make sacred say the mountaintops that are strip mined in uh west virginia uh you know or other places you know what are na what are the native peoples in uh the southwest how are they sacralizing uh their spaces that have been uh disrespected in mind how are we doing this you know one of the one of the things i really powerful to me along this is now gosh 20 years ago uh, uh joanna macy and some friends created something called the nuclear guardianship project and we we actually talked about this uh the possibility of this at green gulch basically a place or an institution would adopt a defunct nuclear weapon uh and preserve it uh because nuclear weapons last for 10,000 years you know and if we think about it we have no language that has survived for 10,000 years so how are you going to communicate to the people if there are people 10,000 years from now that this is a source of poison toxicity and danger you can only do that in a way by making a sacred space so that's what comes to mind Heiko, when you when you when you talk about this uh, and but it it comes from a place of uh be with not be over not not lord it over uh but actually to be side by side in partnership with all beings thank you that is that seems to be what the whole movement of society is going for today is adjusting that well it's what it needs to go for you know it I wish I could say I thought it was going for, but uh, either we will go for it or we will all die. We will destroy what we have, which is a possibility. But even if we destroy what we have, uh, I, I really recommend uh, it's a wonderful book called Learning to Die in the Anthropocene. Uh, which is about laying out that even in these dire environmental uh, circumstances that we find ourselves, we have to preserve what is really precious and valuable about human life. And, you know, in a sense, the Lotus Sutra and our practice is part of that. So to preserve it in the face of potential loss is I think this is bodhisattva activity it's a little sobering it's a little dark place to end but you know um, that we are here thinking about this and talking about this together is really it's just i can't tell you how encouraging it is and how fortunate i feel to be 
part of this in, in the community uh, because we have to create community. It's not a given. Any last comments or thoughts, please? Yeah, Jerry. At the risk of being sacrilegious, I'd just like to ask you if you plan to join Gary in cleaning the bathrooms during practice period. Sure, why not? Um, if if uh, if that help is needed, that's fine. Uh, you know, first, I, maybe I need to start with my house. We'll see you Saturday morning at work period, uh, Hosan. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Good. Okay, let's chant the Bodhisattva vows and say good night. And we'll see you in the Zendu. Beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Okay, everyone, thank you. See you next week, if not sooner.